I want to read the first uh, five verses of Micah as we begin our time together in Micah and a couple of the other minor prophets this fall. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word, for there is no word like your word. We're so grateful that we would have this treasure that we could read and study from, that we could, with these very pages open, that we could worship you. So we are grateful to have your word. Our prayer is that now as we look at a portion of Micah this morning, as we think about the minor prophets as well, help us, Father, by the very presence of the Spirit who penned these words through the prophet Micah. May that same spirit now be at work in our midst. May you teach us. May you change us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we uh, will begin a study of some of the minor prophets. And so some of the things I'm going to say this morning are just by way of introduction, both in terms of the prophet Micah, as well as um, the, the minor prophets in general. Micah is a minor prophet. There are 12 minor prophets, five major and 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Why do we call them minor prophets? I don't really know. I would suggest to you that they're not minor prophets because, because the things that they have to say are of minor importance to us. That's not why they're minor prophets. Um, in fact, uh, we would orient this whole series around the notion of major words, minor prophets. I would suggest to you, probably the best answer I've been able to find as to why these guys are called minor prophets is because in a general way, they are shorter. They take up less space. 
than the major prophets. Uh, now, there's an exception to that. Uh, the book of Daniel, who's a major prophet, is actually shorter than the book of um, Zechariah, who's a minor prophet. So there's some exceptions to the rule, but eh, it's a general rule of thumb. It is true. In fact, in fact, all 12 of the minor prophets uh, all fit on one parchment or scroll, if you would, um, and we're probably, you know, we see these as 12 different books, and nothing wrong with that, but probably in the Hebrew Bible, it was just one book with 12 divisions. So, for instance, when Stephen is preaching in the book of Acts, and he quotes from what we now know as Amos chapter 5, he just labels that as the prophets say. Because they were probably just all lumped together in one book, 12 of these minor prophets. Well, it's not going to take long before both myself and you begin to ask, what was he thinking uh, looking at these minor prophets? Um, you, 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 um, we don't naturally run here. In fact, um, part of the reason why I thought it would be Appropriate for look at, to look at the minor prophets is because, uh, for the most part, in my 27 years here, we have uh, we have stayed away from the minor prophets, and you're about to learn why. <laughs> uh, it's just safer that way. Uh, I, it, this is this is not a way to win friends and influence people, um, and um, and and yet, part of being faithful is that we would follow the order that the Apostle Paul gave to the elders at Ephesus where he talked about preaching the whole counsel of God. It's, uh, we don't have permission to uh, ignore certain portions of the scripture if we want to be faithful to the Lord. And so uh, one way to recover uh, that is to start picking some minor prophets and making our way through them. The reason why it's hard is because the, when the minor prophets can hit us and when they confront us, they, the, they all begin with dark and despairing words. They all begin, and here's the problem. The problem is not that the minor prophets are hard to understand. The problem is that they're easy to understand. We just don't want to hear what they have to say. They all begin with a dark and despairing word of judgment. It's hard to find our happy place uh, when we begin open the opening chapters of each of the of the minor prophets. Um, several years ago, uh, a, a person who was a member of the church at that time said to me, uh, "You know, I come to church to be made to feel good, and you're not making me feel good." And uh, we're going to repeat that statement again, perhaps, this morning. Uh, and there's, there's, there's nothing in the prophets, and particularly in the way that they start off, um, that, that lends us to feel real form and fuzzy about ourselves because they confront us with our condition. They confront us with uh, our sin. And yet, and yet if, if we'll stick with it, um, the, the minor prophets all begin with these dark and foreboding, ominous words of despairing judgment. And, and yet, all of the prophets, the minor prophets that particularly are written to uh, Israel and Judah, they all end bright and hopeful. 
So don't give up too quick. They all begin dark and ominous, despairing. They all end bright and hopeful for they not only spell out to us messages of judgment and condemnation, they also spell out for us messages of hope and salvation. Now, also by way of introduction, the, the minor prophets, and I could just lump the five major prophets in with this as well, uh, I would suggest to you that they, they do primarily two things, primarily. They could do more than this, but at least two things. First of all, all of the prophets, Micah included, um, they are, first of all, backward-looking. And what I mean by that is that the prophets take a look back at the covenant agreement that the nation of Israel operated under before God. You remember after the Lord rescued Israel out of Egyptian captivity and he got them to the base of Mount Sinai. There at Mount Sinai, he established a covenant with them because God doesn't do casual relationships. God does covenant relationships. And God rescued a people and brought them to himself. And being in relationship with God meant that they would relate to God covenantally. And the Mosaic Covenant that we would call, you could maybe use some other name, but the Mosaic Covenant uh, laid out for the nation of Israel what God would be and do for them and what they would need to be and do before God. They would need to obey him and love him and worship him as specified in the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. And then when Moses renewed that covenant in the next generation, and, and we find that in the book of Deuteronomy, we get to Deuteronomy chapter 28, 29, and 30, which in a sense explain to us what in the world is going on in the Old Testament. Well, it's all laid out for us in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, because in Deuteronomy 28 to 30, we see the blessings and the curses connected to the Mosaic Covenant. If you will love me, if you will obey me, if you will worship me, here's the ways that you will be blessed in the land. If you disobey me, if you ignore me, if you worship some other God, then this is the way you will be cursed in the land. And in fact, if you persist in your uh, disobedience and uh, ignoring me and serving other gods, I will actually curse you to the point of I will yank you out of the land. So none of that is a surprise. When the prophets begin to say, here's what's about to happen. You're about to exit the land. Uh, you, oh, no, no, no one warned. No, no, Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. The stipulations of the covenant along with the curses and blessings. And so in that sense, the, the prophets, Micah being one, uh, the, the prophets are covenant enforcers. They were raised up by God to remind people of the covenant relationship that they existed in with God. The prophets confront them with a clear message of stop breaking the law. Followed up by, if you persist in breaking the law, here are the remaining curses that will fall upon you. 
dark and ominous. But the prophets also do another thing, and particularly uh, the further we get into the prophets, uh, the, the more this becomes clearer. They, do, they not only look backwards, uh, but they're also forward-looking. And while Micah does not explicitly use this term, the prophet Jeremiah would be an example of this. They, they speak of a new covenant, in contradistinction to the Mosaic covenant, they speak of a new covenant that God will make with his people, in which even, and this was spelled out in the, later in the book of Micah, a new kind of exodus, a, a new deliverance from captivity is coming uh, for them. Uh, a, new, a new David, a new king from the line of David will emerge. In fact, and it's in the book of Micah itself that will remind us uh, that in the the birthplace of David will come the birthplace of the, of the new David. And all of that is because God had made these special promises to Abraham that, if you would, predates the covenant that Moses and Israel made with the Lord. God had made a covenant with Abraham. And the reason why that, there, that these prophets always end with a message of hope is because the kind of arrangement that God made with Abraham was an arrangement of, uh, of, of unconditional love and affection and salvation. Now, of these minor prophets, I want us to look at three this fall. Micah, which is what we're starting on this morning, Micah prophesied somewhere between 740 to 700, give or take a few years that way or this way, 740 to, to 700 B.C. So Micah was finished about 700 years before Christ ever shows up. And then after we look, look at Micah, so probably sometime, Lord willing, in October-ish, um, we'll then switch and go to Nahum. Nahum was probably within a generation from the time that, that Micah was uh, finished. And then, and then 20 years after Nahum, we'll, we'll then look at, not well, we, we won't look at the 20 years after Nahum, but it'll still be this fall, but 20 years after Nahum spoke and prophesied his word, then we'll look at a third minor prophet, Habakkuk. So Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. Why those three? Well, a, a couple of reasons, and these, and these, for these reasons, this is not the, this is not only said of these three, but one of the things I wanted us to mull over at, through these minor prophets is the reality that God rules over the nations. I don't know if you've noticed it, but the nations are a mess right now. And we're wondering, God, where are you at? Uh, and uh, what we see is that this is not the first time that nations have been a mess. 
and the God who rules over the nations as they were a mess in Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk's time is the same God who rules over nations today as they are in a mess. God raises up nations to carry out his purposes, and God brings down nations according to his purposes. God rules over the nations. And we'll see that played out in a fascinating way through Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. For instance, one of the things that's driven home to Micah is the mess to to Israel and Judah during the prophecy of Micah is that they are about to be judged. They will be judged by God raising up the Assyrians to be his instruments of judgment, particularly upon Israel, which by this time is the northern kingdom of the nation, but also inflicting great torment on Judah, which by this time is the southern uh, uh, kingdom of the nation. So the, the 12 tribes split up into 10 northern tribes, Israel, two southern tribes, Judah. And the message that Micah is delivering is that you're going to be judged. The Lord himself is going to come down and judge you, but he's going to do that by raising up the Assyrians. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians sweep down into the northern kingdom of Israel and destroy the capital of Israel, which is Samaria. You saw that word listed here a couple of times in our reading this morning. That's the capital of the northern kingdom of of Israel. But at that same time then, Assyria, which was the world bully or superpower at that that time, uh, they would sweep on down and and take the edges of Judah and actually uh, surround um, the... The, the city of Jerusalem, which was the capital of Judah at that time. That happened during the time of Hezekiah, which is during the time that Micah is prophesying. Remember, it says uh, during Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And yet God preserves Judah at that moment. For he sends the angel of the Lord who destroys the Assyrian army that night. So, so God raises up nations and God throws down nations. And then Assyrians turn around and go home. And then the, the prophet Nahum comes along the, on the, along the lines and announces judgment against the, the mighty power of Assyria. It reminds them that uh, they have broken God's law. They didn't. They, 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 certainly it's true they broke the covenant, but, but they weren't in covenant relationship the same way Israel was. But nevertheless, God as their creator holded, held them accountable to live according to the law that he would place in their own conscience, and they violated that, and they will be held accountable for that. And so God used the Assyrians to be instruments of judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel, and that God turns around and then judges the Assyrians for the brutality that they have inflicted upon the people around them, including Israel. And that's important that we get our mind around. So God raised them up, and then God judged them for what they chose to do. And then the prophet Habakkuk uh, comes along. And um, 
part of the judgment that Nahum will dispense upon the Assyrians is that they will be judged. God will raise up the Babylonians. And, and, uh, and, and, and Habakkuk is now happening in that time. Now Babylon, Babylon is the superpower. They're the big bully on the block. And, and uh, they have taken care of the Assyrians, and now they will eventually take care of the southern kingdom of Judah. And Habakkuk is totally confused as to, as to why God is, is not attending to the mess in Judah. And God says, I am. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring the Babylonians over, and they're going to be my instruments of judgment upon Judah. And then after they are my instruments of judgment upon Judah, I will judge them for the sins that they have committed. I say all of that just to remind us that, that uh, no nation, no nation, no nation will get away from their rebellion and disobedience to the one true God. Every nation, Israel in particular, but every other nation as well, lives accountable to the God who made them and the God who raised them he will be the God who, when he sees fit, will bring them down. Another reason why I wanted to look at some of these minor prophets, and this is going to be true of Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, but it's true of so many of the other prophets, is uh, uh, unless you just woke up from the last 10 years of a stupor, the word, the term social justice has really loomed large in our culture today. And um, what's, what's so intriguing is that if we really want to know something about social justice, we will look not at the morning newspaper or not at Twitter or whatever Twitter is called now, X something or other, but uh, we, won't, we won't try to sort it out through other avenues of social media. If we really want to know what this thing called social justice is in its truest sense, then we will look at the minor prophets. For the minor prophets actually then help us to understand that while there are structural components to, to uh, injustice, uh, there's actually a whole boatload of personal aspects to injustice. So that what we hear today as social justice in large part could be remedied if we understood the need for personal righteousness. I mean, for instance, look, look, at, look at crime. Look at the social disintegration in our culture today. Look at, look at crime, how rampant it is. And we, we say, well, that's, that's because there is so much social unrest and social inequity and, and social poverty and, and all of that gives rise to a, what is even excused as a reasonableness to why there is so much crime and harm against other human beings. And yet, if we really wanted to put an end to crime and poverty and a whole host of other aspects of social disintegration, then we would address it at its core. We would tell men to not get women pregnant that they are not married to. 
because poverty and crime and a whole host of other social ails is all predicated upon the rise of fatherlessness in our culture. And so if we want to address a social justice issue, we have to deal with it on a level of personal righteousness. See, the prophets help us to sort that out and understand that. Well, then briefly, let's take about, well, I'll say six minutes, but I'm probably not telling you the truth, but um, at least not intentionally. So uh, let's look very carefully, or very quickly, not carefully, but quickly, that's our choice, but uh, um, at uh, the first five verses. Now, we'll come back and read Micah chapter one again next week, Lord willing, uh, but I just wanted to orient us to the prophets in general and then see how, how what I've said about the prophets in general get played out in particular uh, by an, an introduction to, 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 to Micah. Um, we're, we're told this guy's name. We're told where he's from. He's just about a dozen miles southwest of Jerusalem. So he's, he's from a rural area. It's probably where Moreshef is. And, and his name is Micah. What's so intriguing, and, 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 and I, I really do think this is, this is not a mistake. This is important. Micah's name, that name literally means who is like God. And uh, the punchline to, to, to the name of Micah never shows up to the very end of the book. In chapter 17, the, uh, almost to the second to the last verse. Now, don't go there yet. In Micah 7, I'm sorry, Micah 7. But, but at the very last, we, 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 we learn something profound about who is like our God well, the whole book explains to us some things about God that we wouldn't quite figure out otherwise. And so the word of God is so crucial to understanding who is God like. God, God is not a figment of our imagination. God is not a creation of our imagination. But God has made all things, and he has revealed himself through his word. And so we want to know who God is and what he is like. We would look at his word. The prophets, the prophets are so helpful to, to do that. Who is like our God? What is God like? And he says there, um, the word of the Lord that came to Micah. The Lord issued these words that we have pinned by Micah. The prophets did not create the words that they spoke the prophets did not control the words that they spoke. Second Peter chapter one, verse 21 says that uh, no prophecy uh, was come about by the will of man, but men um, moved by the Holy Spirit spoke as they did. And we see that, that, that this is the word that the Lord brought to Micah. It, it, it was in a, in, in a vision of sorts. Um, uh, that he says that, that which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Uh, so it was, uh, you might say it was an oracle, a vision from God uh, that then drove the 40 plus years of Micah's ministry. And, and yet those, that what we have in these seven chapters of the book of Micah is an appropriate, what God wanted us to have, a summary digest of 40 plus years of faithful prophesying. The book is divided nicely into three segments. 
chapters one and two of the first segment. And each segment begins as we just read here in verse two. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth. That's how each segment begins. It's a command to listen or to hear what is being said. And so chapters one and two are the first unit. Chapters three, four, and five are the second unit. And then the final unit is chapters six and seven. Each unit begins with that statement in one, two, three, one, and six, one. Hear or listen, which is the command that God has for us this morning. And here's what God says as he begins the, this word through the first five verses of, of what we read earlier this morning. First, the Lord is coming. Do you see where he says that in, in verse three? For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. The Lord is coming. And, and here's what Micah wants you and I to know about that. Um, and that's bad news. The Lord is coming, and that's bad news. In fact, the imagery uh, uh, that he has here, um, and also in verse 2, here, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Before he comes down, he... Uh, it's really that the, the vibe is like of a, of a courtroom. And the Lord is judge, but guess what? The Lord is also the prosecuting attorney. He is going to bear witness, and all the earth is to be in the courtroom to observe the judgments that God is going to bring to Israel and Judah, to Samaria and Jerusalem. The Lord is coming, and that's a bad thing. It's a bad thing because... Well, we'll get to that in, in a moment. But first, the Lord, here's the case that the Lord has as to why the Lord is coming, and that's bad news because he's coming and making the case against Israel and Judah, uh, and he is going to judge or condemn them as a result. For behold, uh, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Now, that's incredible imagery here. And um, one of the things that struck me as I read particularly the second part of verse three and all of verse four is um, you know, there's a lot of talk in our culture today about um, uh, caring for and protecting the environment. And, uh, and I think that's a part of our commission. Uh, maybe not in all the ways that everybody else might think it is, but we are stewards of this earth and we should be faithful stewards. And, 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 yet, and yet the interesting thing here is that, uh, do you know what the greatest danger to the environment is? when the Lord returns and brings judgment upon this earth. So if you really care about the environment, repent and turn to Jesus. For when he comes, he will judge the earth. 
He will judge the inhabitants of the earth. See, I'm not suggesting we play fast and loose with the environment and the resources that we are entrusted with, and yet, and, 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 and yet, and yet we don't worship this earth. We should worship the one true God who at this present moment is holding this earth together, and when he returns will inflict judgment upon this earth so that before he's done, he'll have to remake this earth. This is not about worshiping this earth. It's, it's about having enough awareness that we should be worshiping the God who will judge this earth. Well, the Lord is coming, and that's bad news because he comes with judgment. Secondly, the Lord is angry. Look at verse 5. All of this, in other words, why is he going to do all of this? Why is he going to, like, melt the heavens and the earth? Why is he going to do all of this? Why all of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel? Those two words that he lists there, on the one hand, overlap and, and are related to each other, transgression and sins, and yet, and yet it's, I'd be helpful just to pull them apart for a moment and just hold how, how they are distinct from each other. The, the word sin means missing the mark, falling short. In other words, the standard that God gave to Israel through the Mosaic law, they have come up short. They have, they have failed to achieve that standard. They've flunked. They've missed it. But the other word is even more intense, perhaps. The word transgression. That word speaks of a notion of rebellion against authority. In fact, a word that we use in our culture today, at least for the last two or three years, is the word sedition. And, and that, that, would be, that would be a fittable uh, notion of of what transgression describes. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a seditious rebellion against God. So because Israel and Judah have rebelled against God, committed uh, sedition against him, and because they have failed to live up to the standard of their agreement, the law of God, then God is coming. So uh, he, he is angry, and, and that is... Our doing. Now it's in this context, it's Israel and Judah's doing. You get the point. But to pull that out and, and to make that somewhat applicable to for us today, <clears throat> we could we could emulate the same message of Micah for today. The Lord is coming. I don't know when, and nor do you, nor does your brother-in-law, even though he thinks he does, so that, that's okay. The Lord is coming, and that's bad news. The Lord is coming in anger. He is coming in a just anger, and that is our doing. All of humanity 
will give an account before the one holy true God. And, and, and yet I'll close with this. That's, 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 where, that's where we end with Micah. But I'll close with this. In our own day and time, before the Lord comes again, we are reminded he came a first time. And when he came a first, first time, that was good news. That was good news because he came the first time to absorb the very anger and justice that would accompany him when he comes the second time. In other words, I say all that to mean, how, to, how do you and I stand before a holy God if he was to come this afternoon or tomorrow or this week or sometime soon and he's angry? And, and how, how do you and I deal with that? How do you and I, we can't talk our way out of circumventing the angry justice of God while there is a way that God himself has provided, and that is through the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ for the one who never disappointed the one true God, the one who obeyed the one true God, the one who honored and upheld all code of righteousness before the one true God is the one who went to the cross. And there at the cross, he took upon himself the sins of people like you and me. At the cross, he substituted himself. He took upon himself the very anger and wrath and justice of God that will one day be meted out on those who do not belong to Jesus. That's how the prophets can all end with a message of bright hope because they knew something that that now we know even more clearly and fully, and that is before God would come and implement the full implementation of his justice, God would come, first of all, through his son to bring about a means of salvation. That by trusting in Jesus, by turning to Jesus, we acknowledge not only our sinfulness, but we gratefully acknowledge that our sinfulness has been resolved by the justice carried out upon Jesus in our place. So to whatever degree you and I might feel the darkness and the despair of our sins, turn to Christ. Trust only in Jesus. For it is only in Jesus that there is a bright hope for Jesus has fully absorbed the justice of God in our place. Father, thank you for your word, for we know that there's no word like your word. Help us as we make our way through the prophets, at least the three that we'll begin with. Father, teach us. And Father, as we are hit in multiple ways with the reality of our sins and the sins of those around us, may, may we not leave in a sense of despair, but may we leave with a greater appreciation for who Christ is and what he has done for us. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.